Welcome to Stop Telling and Start Listening with David Cook. If you're frustrated with the way we are speaking or not speaking to each other, if you find yourself easily at odds in your conversations with people, this may be just the show for you. Listen in as David and his guests will help you elevate your communication skills and navigate the tensions present in many conversations today. Now, here is David Cook. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. This is David Cook. Welcome to another episode of Stop Telling and Start Listening. Um, I'm excited about this episode for a lot of reasons, but uh, one of the things that I have been emphasizing to you, my audience, is that I'd like to see us start to make a shift in this show where we tee up what I will call, I'll put in quotes, controversial subjects, and give us an opportunity to learn or hear from people um, who have perspectives, experiences, opinions, beliefs, whatever you want to call it, as it relates to topics that elicit emotional responses rather easily. And if you remember about five weeks ago, I had um, Hueda Arif on, we talked about um, uh, Palestinian human rights and um, Israeli human rights violations, and obviously that was a was a lightning rod subject for those people who um, are invested in their opinions and beliefs of the Middle East. And I really want to start getting into that. And the reason is there's two reasons. Two there's two reasons for it. One is we have a tremendous opportunity to learn, even from people that we may disagree with. We have a tremendous opportunity to learn about the challenges and the issues from perspectives from other people, even if we don't necessarily agree with them. But the other reason that I want to do this is because um, I love to listen. I love to learn. I love to be in the middle of controversy. And so I don't really care <laughs> what somebody's opinion is from a, like, you know, whether I like it or dislike it. I really embrace the opportunity to sit with somebody and have them tell me what they believe, why they believe it, and how it influences their choices, decisions, and behaviors. Because when I get the opportunity to engage at that level, it provides me an opportunity to connect on a much different um, in a much different way. And it gives me an opportunity to build or enhance or improve a relationship. And I think that that's what we need to do. And that's why this show is what it is. That's why we have this show. Today, um, the, the topic is... Um, law enforcement and policing in the U.S. And, you know, in and of itself, that's not necessarily a controversial or lightning rod topic. But in the news, in the media, um, there have been a lot of stories about um, uh, police abuses and uh, police corruption and stuff like that. And it's easy for us to focus on what um, my business law professor in grad school talked about, which what I would call the hysterical exception. The, that thing that we can point to and say, see, that's an example of what's wrong, as though that's the norm. And I, you know, I love that thing, you know, that she introduced us to the hysterical exception, because it doesn't necessarily mean it's the norm. It's the thing we want to point to that says this is the reality and this is the way it really is. And that, that's all the more reason why we need to explore. Is it really the norm or is it the norm of what we're reporting? Is it the norm of the story we're telling? That's different than saying that's what goes on all the time. So when I was driving out to Detroit for my summer escape from the uh, furnace known as the state of Arizona, um, I had this brainstorm and said, you know, I've got a really good friend of about 40 years who um, was a police officer who's passionate about sharing 
insights and perspectives. It doesn't mean he's thumping the the blue wall kind of stuff. Is that I've listened to him talk, I've watched things that he's posted on Facebook, and I think he brings a really balanced, um, empathetic, and insightful um, perspective to the challenges that police officers face today, and the challenges society faces when we're dealing with um, a very unstable societal norm right now. We are all pretty charged up. We are all pretty amped up. It doesn't take a lot for anybody to get pissed off. And as you see more articles about people getting yanked off of planes because they're punching out stewardesses, you get to see stories about um, traffic stops turning into fights or whatever. And I just thought, you know, it's time to have an honest conversation about law enforcement and policing in the United States not from a what's wrong with the cops sort of story, but what's wrong with what with our society and how can we help everybody, the people doing their jobs as well as the people who are getting pulled over and arrested. So this is my good friend, Corky Vanderplug, 27 years as a police um, in law enforcement with the state of state police in New Jersey. He's done some executive security as well. And like I said, um, I love his voice. I love his opinion. So I'm going to tell you right now, I'm I'm on team Corky, but um, huh. I I still will challenge him. I promise you. So Corky, thank you for taking time to be on the show today. Yeah, absolutely, David. Thanks for having me. Um, so you know, it was interesting. We had a little brief conversation a couple of weeks ago when I got this brainstorm. But um, let's just dive into the deep end of the pool right away. Is you know, you've been there. You've been you you've been on patrol. You've pulled people over. You've shared with me some great stories that are funny. You've never shared me the terrifying stories, which is okay. But um, tell me a little bit about what it's like to be a police officer today. Yeah, well, of course, today it's even more. It's different for for uh, those that are out there because you know I'm ancient history. In fact, I said when I retired from the state police, I was a dinosaur. Now I'm a fossil. Um, <laughs> I retired back in 2005, but it really goes to the greater societal thing. You know what? Like you like you stated in your introduction, what happened to civility, right? And and I think there there's a there's an immediate. Um, there's immediate response when someone is told that they're wrong. I don't like to be told when I'm wrong. You don't. It's our human nature. We don't like to be told when we're wrong. And unfortunately, your job when you're enforcing the law is you're usually showing up to tell somebody that they're wrong. And um, there's that immediate pushback, right? Um, some of that can be, some of that can be um, not so. Uh, you know, extreme, and some of it can be very extreme. Um, so there's that immediate confrontation, and that's just, you know, I, I, I had a discussion with pastors a couple times about, you know, dealing with, you're, you're most of the time you're dealing with people at their worst, otherwise you wouldn't be there, right? Mm-hmm. And they say, well, we kind of do the same thing. I said, yeah, but you at least get to do a wedding once in a while. You right. know, we don't have that. It's If you're showing up at something, it's usually because things aren't good, right? There's some kind of confrontation. There may be confrontation amongst people at the location you're going to. The confrontation may be you. You know, it, you may be the, the person that's being confronted. But again, you're there trying to, I call it referee the madness, all right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're trying to go, society has asked you to go out there and, um, 
enforce the norms that society has agreed upon that should be the way we should be living our lives, right? Not everybody wants to agree with that. And a lot of people, especially in this day and age, you know, this whole this whole idea of, of self-awareness has gotten so extreme where it's become self-centeredness. And you, you mentioned it, you see it on airplanes, right? So when you're the person showing up, there's that automatic pushback. Um, and it's a human thing. We, we all have it to some degree, but it's really gotten extreme these days. I don't really know. Well, I have some theories as to why, and we can talk a little bit about that. But um, yeah, so that's so that's what you're dealing with. The other side of it, David, and I is is there's a fear factor. There's a fear factor on the person that's sitting in the car, and that could be a simple thing. Like I remember pulling a young lady over one night. She was doing 40 miles per hour in the left lane of the Garden State Parkway. You know the Parkway, Dave. That's just not a healthy thing to do, right? So it's about 10 o'clock at night. I pulled her over. She's got a gentleman sitting next to her. Well, it comes to find out the gentleman is her father. This young girl had just gotten her permit, and she is scared to death of me, right? She's trembling. She's so, and I'm I'm trying to calm her down. I said, listen, I just, you can't be in the left lane. And her father should have known better, but you can't, you you know, if, first of all, if this is the best you can do, you probably shouldn't be out on a highway. But secondly, just keep it in the right lane and just you know and and get yourself comfortable and and she was just so frightened i even said to her listen i'm gonna go at the end of my shift i'm gonna go put in a pair on a pair of jeans and sneakers and i'm gonna be looking just like you do right it's i'm Mm -hmm. no different and i think um so but unfortunately as i pulled away i saw her get out and her father took over and you know but she was scared to death on my side of that equation i walk up to a car I have no idea why this person is going 40 miles per hour in the left lane, right? Are they drunk? Are they high? Is there something that's going on in that car, right? So mm. there's a bit of a fear factor in me as well, even though it, it you know, it be, can become routine because you do it so much. There's still that little bit, gee, what do I have here, right? And those two, the, the, the combination of those two things um, can, can make for a, a volatile cocktail at times, depending on who the individuals are. Um, so yeah, that's there's so there's a lot going on, even on a simple traffic stop. I made a I made a long dissertation into your question, but <laughs> no, it's uh, well, it's it's a good one. I you know it's interesting because we talk about um, you know we talk about trauma. I know you that you do want to talk about mental health and stuff like that in this conversation, but we talk about um, trauma and that whole flight or um, fight or flight kind of thing, and like you said. I'm I'm used I've been trained to to be on on alert. I've been trained to pay attention. I've been trained to you know follow, follow certain safety protocols to make sure that I'm not in danger, right? And so you you have those experiences and then, you know, as things happen in your in your profession, it raises it raises the raises the bar for you to pay closer attention, doesn't it? So you, it, it's natural for you to have a heightened sense of awareness when you're pulling somebody over. There's no such thing as a routine traffic stop, really, is there? No, because, you know, there are instances when things do go bad. You know, I, a guy that I had a great respect for um, and I had, had an opportunity to work for in the early 80s, he was shot and killed on the side of the highway on a tra- simple traffic stop, <laughs> you know, Um 
and it's a simple thing like getting hit by a car you know you're people talk about especially when you do highway patrol people talk about you know worrying about getting shot well i can tell you i jumped over guardrail more than once getting out of the way of a vehicle that you know was out of control right so there so there's a lot of fear when you step out of that car but but it's the unknown and that's Mm -hmm. you know that's kind of the danger zone right there's there's the unknown on both sides there's the unknown as i'm walking up to that car at two o'clock in the morning I have no idea who's in that car. I have no idea what they may have just done or didn't do. And they know who I am. um, But yet, and we can get into some of the media stuff that hypes some of this stuff up. They have a fear factor now um, of what I might do. And yeah, that I'd like to talk about because it's, it's just so, it's so frustrating. But anyway, yeah. So the fear factor certainly has an impact on every every um every confrontation every interaction that you have because you don't know what's going to happen next mm-hmm. so so when, from from the time that you started out as a as a newbie um what, what was the correct term for your role was it a trooper what what, what are they calling you were a recruit <laughs> And if you weren't a very good recruit, they only called you crew. They didn't even give you the recruit. You were oh, just yeah. a crew. Yeah, oh, that's right. Crew, crew is is the ultimate disrespect. Huh? That means <laughs> you're you're not even there, and not even in the game yet, right? Yeah. So, but when you're out there and and stuff like that over the years, as your experience go, did you, um, for you emotionally, energetically, and those kind of things, did you um, ever notice a change in your behaviors or your um, mindset as you as you, yeah, you I, work the streets if you will i yeah i i think and, and that's part of it because i a lot of these things have a cumulative effect um and you know, i was only i was only in put in a patrol function for six years um but i could see myself changing you get lied to so much um that you don't believe anything anybody tells you anymore and it can turn you from a person who's trying to go out and protect and serve and be compassionate to a person that becomes very callous and sarcastic because you just get so tired of it you know Mm -hmm. um and and then there's the trauma factor and i'll and i'll you know so as we lead into you know my my passion if you want to call it that for for trying to deal with the psychological issues of policing is I'll give you a, for instance, about two months into my career, um, I was stationed at a rural station up in, you remember, Sussex County, northwestern New Jersey, and we had a traffic accident happen on the shift before me. Two young kids, high school age kids, it was a beautiful spring afternoon. They played hooky from school. They bought a case of beer, went in a field, drank the whole case of beer, and now came out onto the roadway and started paying chick chick playing chicken with cars coming the other way. Well, yeah. finally, they didn't get back quick enough on one of those cars. It was a small subcompact car with a family of four. A young mother and father were killed. The six-year-old boy survived. The three-year-old little girl, and this is what I'm getting to, um, my colleague, one of the guys that I went through the academy with was working that shift, and he talked to me afterwards. He said, I'm holding her, I'm trying to clear an airway, and I can just hear the blood bubbling in her lungs, and I can't do anything to save her, right? (laughs) And, yeah, I still get choked up thinking about it. And then you take these two kids... They're in the detective's office and they're still kind of giggly about the whole thing. 
you know? And so that's just one instance, right? And now this guy, my my colleague, he's got to go home and then show up for work at seven o'clock the next morning like nothing happened. And okay, all right, next, you know, what's up next? You know, here we go, next day, right? And that stuff, I believe, and I'm not a psychologist, but I believe it has a cumulative effect. So it's not just the constant confrontation, but it's also the traumatic things that happen to you. You know, David, I can tell you stories about things that I saw in that realm that, that would curl your hair, right? You know, just simple thing. One of the, a couple months later, I had to go out in a boat in the middle of a lake and pull in a body of a guy who had committed suicide by chaining his ankle to an anchor, a boat anchor, two cinder blocks full of concrete. He floated that anchor to the top in 30 days. That's how bloated this body was. I had to be there with the guys from the fire department to bring him in, then go to the autopsy. And then I just have to go home now and go to work the next day, right? And everything's okay. And everything's okay, right? Turn the page, right? Yeah, right. So- so, like I said, that's why, you know, it's a lot, a lot of days can be routine, although even the routine days, you have that, those confrontational issues, um, and they aren't always bad. You have, I had to have many people that thanked me after I gave them a summons, you know, um, but most of the time again, so, so you add those things together and I believe it has a cumulative effect and I believe it impacted me. You know, I can remember going somewhere with Sue one night, my wife, and we were talking about somebody and she mentioned somebody I think that was getting separated that we knew. And she's telling me what she had been told. I said, oh, yeah, I'll tell you what really happened. Well, I didn't know. But you be again, you become so. Yeah, you become so caustic. Um, it, it's almost like a self-defense mechanism, because if you let yourself be sensitive to it, it will just eat you alive. So now you build this shell around yourself psychologically so that so that you can't let some of that in um, because you you know that it could destroy you if it does. So and it, and there's not a lot that's done to help you deal with that. And we can talk about that a little bit if you yeah. want. To. Yeah, we're going to come. Well, I was going to probably do a lot of that on the after the break, but um you know, it's interesting you talked about this because, as you know, and I think my audience knows is that I, um, you know, I have a, my youngest son has a substance abuse issue and he's in and out of recovery and all that other stuff. He's in and out of jail. So his opinion of police officers and his experience with law enforcement is entirely different than mine, where, you know, it's traffic stops and, you know, me driving like an idiot at times, which are easy for me to deal with. But, um, you know, in in the addiction world, um, one of the things that I've that I learned early on is, is that that whole notion of, you know, um, how do you know, uh, how do you know that a person with an addiction is lying to you? Their lips are moving. So you get to this point where you're looking for the for the BS. In fact, you're almost right. ex- you're almost expecting that whatever they're saying is really crap. And you spend some time with them to decipher that. But your my original thought was, yeah, let me see how how long it's going to take you before you start to lie to me or to yourself or however you want to go. And so you become a little jaded. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, yeah, and, you do. And yeah, in you a, do. I, and in my situation as a as a dad or a parent coaching parents or a parent working with um, somebody with substance abuse issues, for me, my position in that situation isn't life and death and isn't 
you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, unfortunately for me, I didn't have to deal with somebody, you know, walking in on somebody who died from an overdose and I didn't have any of those traumatic experiences, but I would have to confess to you, um, Corky, that part of the reason that I have taken the three year, I'm now on a three year break from dealing with substance abuse stuff is because I realized how overwhelmed I got in, you know, with my own personal self-protection. Yeah. That I wasn't in a healthy place that I needed to get a break from it so that I could be in a healthier place for me because I realized how much it was destroying me. And the, and like I said, the, the level of trauma for me compared to somebody who like you, you know, out there seeing people at their worst and, you know, getting, not knowing the dangers or the threats or any of the other stuff, or just the traumatic experience of death and destruction. Yeah. I didn't have any of that. And I can tell you, I needed a break. So I, 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 I can totally relate in some it's, respects. It's, you know, it's the human factor. And unfortunately, and I've never seen a profession that gets so maligned by the actions of a few as, as policing. Um, but, but that human factor is such an important part of policing, but yet it also makes you vulnerable. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, if you don't, um, at least get checked into once get checked up on once in a while how your vulnerability is how you're how you're dealing with it um it, it can fester into things and we see it in policing we see it in we see it in um you know police uh, abuse cases we see it in domestic disputes with police officers in the home you know we see it in police suicides right um it has an effect it has an impact and and Everyone needs to have some help to deal with that, at least see where they're at, you know. Um, so I've talked about how uh, New Jersey State Police is, has one of the best, I think, in the country programs for checking on and improving and helping your physical well-being. We have what's called the well trooper exam that you do. You go to a hospital or go to a, a, an office in the, in the winter, you have a full physical done. And we've had a lot of men and women that they've caught cancers and several other things during this physical. And then, but that's done so that in the fall you can participate in a physical fitness test where you have to run a timed mile and a half, you have to do a certain number of push-ups, a number of sit-ups, et cetera, right? So, um, so you have to have, the, the doctors have to say it's okay for you to go do these exercises, right? And if there's a problem, okay, we have to check that before. Um, if you don't participate in that fitness program, there's, there's a, there's a, you know, I don't call it a punishment, but you don't, you don't, you're not eligible for promotion, right? So everybody mm -hmm. has to do it. We don't do that with psychology, psychological issues. We have, we have, and it what's called an employee assistance program EAP, mm -hmm. um, which if you feel you need some help, you can go get help. If you have a, a a spouse or a relative that thinks you need help, they can help get you know work to get you help or an astute supervisor. But right away, there's a stigma attached because it's not everyone. Not everybody's going for that help. So if you're going for that help, there must be something wrong with you right mm. um so nobody does it very nobody does it voluntarily or next to no one so now you have alcoholism and you have all of the things that come with that for people trying to compensate for the the difficulty that they're dealing with so i've always been a proponent of we should have a regular psychological well-being checkup just like we do a physical well-being checkup whether it's every year or two years i don't care who you are if you're a frontline um 
police officer, trooper, whatever, you just need to sit with somebody just to say, how are you doing? How are things? How are you dealing with this? Tell me about what's going on, right? I think that's really important, especially in this job. It's probably important for all, but especially in this job. Um, so it it's something that I'm quite passionate about. Um, and what and, and they see, you know, a lot of people say, well, how do you pay for something like that? Well, if you look at what some of the lawsuits that are being settled in cities like New York and LA and Chicago and even here in New Jersey, the money that's being shelled out for police um uh brutality complaints you could save a lot of money if you keep the horse from getting out of the barn before mm. it happens and it would be so much better for everybody um so yeah that's all i'm on my soapbox now but but i just think that that's something where we could do a whole lot better in helping our police officers helping our law enforcement officers deal with that stress stress anxiety and angst that they that all of us deal with Right. And when, and it goes back to, I, I, I know when you were talking about the EAP and I wrote stigma before you said stigma, but that's the, um, that is, that's a cultural challenge that we have in society in the first place is, you know, mental health issues. Most people are reluctant to ask for help. Most people are reluctant to acknowledge that they need help. Um, there's, there's just this thing associated with it, that there's something wrong with you if you're asking for um, a, a way to clear your head or get your head organized. And it, it's unfortunate that, that we have to deal with that because I, nothing's more important than a healthy mind and somebody who, yeah. you know, and, and the health effects of, of being under trauma people, you know, I think, I don't know if people realize how many health related issues come from somebody who's living with trauma, you know, heart disease and cancer and all the other, a lot of stuff is stress related or mental health related, so you talk about yeah, and then you, you show things, you throw things like shift work and all that other stuff in there uh, to add to the the craziness, right? Um, and everybody deals with it differently, but it everybody has to deal with it, and it's not so easy. And I, and I mm -hmm. really do think it has an impact on performance, and I think it's something that we don't do a good job of addressing. So mm -hmm. it's unfortunate, and like you said. Um, when we're dealing with when we're dealing with government, um, and which is what this is, you know, uh, municipalities, states, whatever, it doesn't really matter. But when we start looking at um, what it costs, uh, people always go, "Yeah, you know, that's our tax dollars at work. Now we have to pay for psychological help for our police officers. Why don't they just hire better police officers?" <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know. if only it were that easy, right? Yeah, why don't we train them better? Why don't we well, hire that was, them better? That was actually the only time I had a psychological evaluate, evaluation done was in my initial testing to become a troop. Yeah. You know, after that, you were on your own. Like I said, we had a DEAP, but that was voluntary. You know, wow. there was nobody that checked on me um, proactively after that. So, so when you when you first signed up and says, I want to do this, they they made sure you were right in the head. And then after that, they left you on your own? Kind of. Yeah. I mean, like I said, there was a program available and I don't want to poo poo that because it's a good program, yeah. but it, it wasn't a mandatory program like our physical fitness test is. You have to do the physical fitness test. Yeah. I think we should be doing the same thing with psycho psychological issues as well, just for, yeah. for our own good, our people's good and the good of the community. Yeah. Well, you make a great case for that. That's for sure. Um, all right, we're going to go to break. See how fast this time goes. I'm always amazed. Yeah, it goes really fast. 
you know, but uh, when when we uh, when we come back, um, I'm going to tee up uh, some stereotypes for Corky and watch him flip out. But um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the, the stereotype arguments that people complain about their police officers, et cetera, and put a little perspective on that. Uh, uh, the stories that need to be told by the other side, because um, we think we're perfect and we're not. So anyway, we'll straighten that out. Uh, stay tuned when we come back. And we'll talk some more about law enforcement and some of the fun we're having with that stuff. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. We are living in a time where a relentless commitment to opinions and beliefs are dividing communities and fracturing crucial relationships. Making ourselves right and those who disagree with us wrong leaves little room for engaging in a constructive learning dialogue. There is little opportunity to change minds, find common ground, or solve complex problems. Those who are not being heard or understood become angry, hurt, lost, isolated, alone, and more. While mental health-related issues are on the rise, too few know how to safely share their struggles, and far too many don't know how to care about those that do. While it is increasingly frustrating to experience an increase in this communication divide, there is hope, and according to David Cook, there is an answer. The answer lies in how we adjust our communication style and shift our listening behaviors. In his radio show, Stop Telling and Start Listening, Host David Cook introduces his audiences to the power found in creating a safe place for sharing life perspectives and experiences without judgment, criticism, correction, or shame. There are tremendous opportunities in learning to see the world from the eyes of another. Join David on Mondays at 11 Pacific. Discover how shifting your listening behaviors will close the divide that exists between you and others in your community. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You're listening to Stop Telling and Start Listening. Have a question for David or his guests? Join us on the show at 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. Or you can email Dave at Dave at the Cook Group LLC.com. Now, back to the show with David. And we're back. This is a spirited conversation about law enforcement today. Um, and I have my good friend Corky Vanderplug um, talking about it. And if you'd missed the intro, Corky had, has spent 27 plus years in law enforcement um, and security, et cetera, et cetera. He's enjoying his retirement now. Um, even in his retirement, he we were not going to talk about it, but even his retirement, he can't sit still, but it's okay. Um, you know, one of the things that um, I did want to like touch base on, Corky, is, you know, I alluded to the fact that my son has an opinion and a perspective on law enforcement. He thinks that, um, you know, that, you know, his his thing is they just have an attitude. They don't they don't really care and stuff like that. And you talked a little bit about that. You know, we're seeing people at their worst so they're, you know, our perceptions, our behavior is bad, doesn't necessarily mean their behavior is bad, but it's how we perceive their behavior as it relates to ours, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, one of the challenges that I've, and this is just an impression thing for me more than anything else, having watched my son get arrested in front of me a couple of times, mm-hmm. um, 
there is the there is this authoritarian behavior that does great on me personally and um you know i don't know i don't know if it's just a perception thing or if it's really is a behavior but tell me a little bit about how you you know i'm i don't know how to even ask a question about this but comment on that comment i guess is the thing is, is i mean why do i feel like when i'm dealing with a police officer i'm dealing with somebody who's in absolute control absolute authority and it is intimidating yeah well part of that is what we would call cons- constructive force and and part of that is a police tactic um you need to act like you're in control when you're in the middle of mayhem somebody has to be in control Somebody has to be the 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 rock, the guiding force, right? Um, so that's part of it. Um, part of it is what we talked about earlier is you just get so tired of it, Dave, that you just don't want to deal with it. And that police officer doesn't know David Cook or your son like I do, right? If mm-hmm. I showed up, it would be different, but he doesn't know you from any other guy. And then you don't know what he just dealt with or is going to deal with tomorrow. Right. So that's part of it is as well. Um, so it, it can be. And, you know, and I'm not going to say, hey, all cops are great. No, there are some that probably shouldn't shouldn't be wearing a uniform. Some, but a very small number mm-hmm. because and I can say that with some some conviction because i know what goes through the process that that that's involved in the the selection process of bringing someone into that into that uh into that career um it's not an easy process i mean for me and in every department's different they were going back to they were talking to my high school coaches teachers they were going back to they when they came to my they came to my house to do the interview they wanted to see my room to check out see what posters i might have hanging up i mean it was intense right um so the process is not perfect guaranteed and and people slip through that shouldn't but i can you know i can say that the process about is is about as thorough as you could ask it to be um to try and keep the right people in those positions because you know it's like uh what was it the the first spider-man movie with great power comes great responsibility right mm-hmm. well yeah when you, you can take when you can take someone's ability to walk away when you can take their that freedom away from them and you have the authority to do so that's a great responsibility when you can t- take somebody's life if you have to that there's no bigger responsibility than that so there again that that is that is a huge thing and you have to have the right people making those sometimes life and death decisions but as we talked about earlier it can i can tell you there were points in my during my career in certain instances and things that i would show at but just don't talk to me i don't want to hear your crap because i've been listening to this crap all day long you know and you know (laughs) You know, they probably have dealt with a lot of Brandons, David, you know, in in their careers. And they don't know Brandon Cook from any other one. Right. Mm -hmm. So you kind of everybody gets kind of put into that same. Unfortunately, somebody gets everybody gets put into that same mold just as society 
puts every police officer into that same mold because they wear that uniform, right? Um, so, yeah, it's not. I've been, I've, I've had my own issues with cops that tell me, you know, you got to move your car over there. You got to do that. You know, and I'm like, Hey dude, you know, give me a break. Right. Yeah. So we started, we started in the beginning. No one likes to be told when they're wrong. Right. And there's that human thing that that pushback. And if it's our loved one, when it's your child, it's probably even more intense. It's a very, very difficult thing to have that happen. Um, so our perspective is probably not as clear as it should be. Um, but that doesn't mean that the other side is, is perfect either. Um, yeah, so that's the best I can give you, but. Well, I think it's, it's good. It's interesting because it is a matter as you're talking and we're, and as we're talking about this, this, we'll call it an issue, but, um, the situation, it is a matter of perspective. Um, for me, my like I said, my experiences. So I have two perspectives. I have experience of my son getting arrested. Um, I don't think I don't think that the the police officers were all that bad, but they were very matter of fact, and there wasn't a whole lot of baloney going on. But at the same time, it wasn't my problem, so I just stepped aside and you know watched the shit show for what it was. But um, in my personal experience, my other direct personal experience is just that. It's traffic citations. Dave, you're being stupid. You got pulled over for speed and ran a stop sign, something like that. So you take your punishment and you move on, right? But um, thinking about people like my son who've been repeatedly arrested um, or he's told stories about where he was in a situation where he got, um, they can tell I'm learning lingo, where he got rolled up on by a bunch of police officers with guns drawn because he fit the description of an armed robbery suspect. And he said, you know, he says, I was terrified. And he said, the way they talked to me and all that other stuff. But I'm thinking, yeah, armed robbery suspect says this is a dangerous suspect, even if it wasn't him. So the police have to say, I have to watch out for myself. There's a certain behavior that I have to engage in to make sure that I'm safe while checking out if this person's safe. So, and, and so he has that, he has that story and he uses it as an example of police officers being overly reactive. And I'm thinking, if they thought you were an armed robbery suspect, what would you expect? Right. <laughs> I mean, they have a right to go home to their family at night, too. Right. Yeah. And and that's just it. They don't know. Just to give you a quick little tidbit about, you know, being pulled over and what, what can happen. Right. So this wasn't me. It was another guy on my squad one night. This is like two o'clock in the morning, northern end of the parkway. You know, the parkway, not much going on. Um, a car goes by one headlight out. You know, it's a fancy red sports car. So he pulls it over and he's making conversation with the guy, asked for his license registration, just wanted to give him a warning, you know, get your headlight taken care of. So it was a Ferrari, right? So he's talking to the guy and he says, by the way, what kind of car is this anyway? And his the guy's response was, what are you worried about? You'll never afford one. Yeah. Now that's what you deal with. Now you deal with that day in and day out. Now it's not everybody, David, but it's, a, it's enough. You know, yeah. I, I stopped a guy who's African-American one day, I had been following him for, I. it was six or seven miles at 20 miles or better over the speed limit. I was in an unmarked car. When I finally pulled him over, after watching him do this, getting behind other cars, tailgating them till they got out of their way, finally pulled him over, his first response was, you're just stopping me because I'm black. Now, that, so again, 
that has a cumulative effect after a while. And after a while, you don't even want to hear it anymore. I used to keep, <laughs> I used to keep on my clipboard a list of it was printed up by somebody like the 35 top excuses for people when they get stopped for speeding, right? And I would carry it up to the car with me and someone would give me and I'd say, yep, that's number 12 right there. You know, I'd point to, you know, it's just because that's how it gets, you know? Um, Again, people don't like to be told when they're wrong, but when you're on the receiving end of that, it, it's not so easy either, right? So it, it, yeah, so it builds this animosity. And after a while, you just don't want to hear it anymore. You just don't right. because you're so tired of it. So, so, so you know, um, we, and we did talk about this really quickly and I don't want to get into the whole deep story, but when I was, a, you know, when I was probably about 11 years old, maybe 12, maybe 10, who knows, somewhere in that range. Um, I, you know, we used to go to a, a church in downtown Detroit. So, the, and it was, it was in the black, it was in a black community. So that, you know, the only, only people that weren't black in that church were the people from the suburbs. Um, and if you guys can't see me on the show, but I'm, I'm pretty white. So I'm, I was the dude from the suburbs. And so we would have, we would go to church twice on Sunday. And a lot of times, I shouldn't say a lot of times, but upon occasion, I would have one of my friends from church over to my house in um, a very segregated community at that time in the 60s and i remember one time we were riding our bikes in my in the around by my elementary school and we got pulled over by the chief of police and you know the guy's name was officer blair because he was the my elementary <laughs> school police liaison and they pulled us over and accused us of stealing our the stealing the bikes and had to prove that they were mine and you know back to that you know the story what triggered the story for me was the guy who said to you, you're only pulling me over because I'm black. Now, for me, I, you know, we got pulled over because I was with a black friend. But, the, you know, I've never been pulled over because I'm black because it's never happened. <laughs> but I did yeah. get pulled over because he was black. So I'm wondering, as a 10-year-old, getting pulled, you know, having to deal with a police officer in that situation, how many times plus the media story and the new sensationalism and the neighbors talking about being black and what it means, you know, there is a point in time where somebody like that guy told you, he's only, you only pulled him over because he was black. It may be his truth because of his previous experiences. Yeah. Yeah, it could be. And, and, um, and I, and and it's it's difficult for me as I mentioned. My son-in-law is is black. I love him like he's my own son. He's a gentle, sweethearted guy, intelligent. Um, and obviously, my grandson is biracial, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I worry about the lives that they have to live. But what I don't worry about, Dave, what I don't worry about is the fact that they're going to be harmed by by a cop who pulls them over. Um, because that has been blown out of the water. And, and, and what bothers me about it is if you look at it statistically, these incidences are so minute that from a, if you were taking a statistical course, it wouldn't even hit, it, it wouldn't even reach the, the scale. It's, you know, now I'm not going to say the death of anybody is inconsequential, obviously not. But from when you talk about, you know, over 60 million encounters that police have on an annual basis with the population in this country you know and then you look at these instances i don't worry about that i what i do worry about is the stigma that's attached to that because all anybody sees on tv 
or what the media pushes or what some of the special interests push, you know, and, and I, yeah, that's, that's, that's a personal struggle for me and it will be. Um, but, uh, the other side of that, you're right. Um, part of that is, you know, everybody wants to say that cops are racist when they do that. Part of it is, is a learned response. And I don't want to go to that whole profiling thing, but, Mm -hmm. um, when you do it day in and day out, if you look at you, if you look at underserved and, um, and, and we, you know, the, the problem is this, the police don't, they aren't responsible for the socioeconomic issues that create some of what we do, what we see, especially in our urban areas, mm-hmm. but they have to manage it. They're asked to manage it. Right. So, um, when you go into those areas, it can jade you. It shouldn't but it can mm-hmm. um and you have to again so we go back to getting some help with that right um um but it so it, it's i understand i understand that and it's and i and i can tell you i'm sure it's happened to my son-in-law where he's walked into a store and he's been looked at a little differently because of the color of his skin and he's the most decent guy you'll ever meet right and that bot that bothers me yes by not by a cop by a store manager or mm-hmm. some other person just, right just a, just somebody right. in the neighborhood yeah right doesn't matter however part of that issue also is if you look at the evening news and you look at and you look at the the just the videos of violent crime you know so who are you mostly seeing in those in those in those videos right mm-hmm. most of the time it's people in because of the communities they live in but it's but it's people of color now that doesn't mean everybody's like that the mo- it's and i know this sounds horrible but if that's your only gauge because culturally we don't mix right mm-hmm. you go to I, I i work as security detail uh once in a while at a wedding banquet facility not too far from here just to give me something to do actually um most of the time if it's a white couple getting married most of the people that are attending are white if it's a black couple getting married, most of the people are African-American. If it's an Asian couple, most of them are Asian. If it's in yada, 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 right? We don't culturally come together normally without right. without it being forced, right? So that all the only gauge that many people have is what they're being shown on TV or what their experience may be. And unfortunately that goes down into the most common denominator where okay same thing happens with police that guy's wearing a blue uniform so i wonder if he's going to come get me right or he's going to go after me right or he's going to shoot me right Right. i you know what's so troubling for me is that there are there are um parent black parents um around this country that go to bed at night when their teenagers are out with their friends sincerely worried about the fact that their son or daughter could get could get killed by the police right because of what's being because of what's being shown to them in in the media i don't worry about that with my son-in-law the the chances of that are i worry more about him getting hit by a bolt of lightning or something than that happening right it's just not real but it's real to again perception perception is reality to those who perceive it Mm -hmm. and when that perception is out there that's reality to those people. We have to change that narrative. And 
police departments have to do more to help change that narrative. I am a strong proponent in community policing. Um, one of my uh, one of my former colleagues, a good friend, his son is a police officer in one of the poorest cities in New Jersey, down in Camden, and he works. They do things like they'll have a cookout with the kids in the community or they'll go they'll go kick a soccer ball away just to try and build rapport and build relationship. Because it, when it when it all boils, when it all comes down to the most common denominator, it's about trust. Mm-hmm. And if one side doesn't have the trust, doesn't trust the other right away, that's going to build confrontation. And that's going to make the job that much harder. So when the police have lost the trust of those people that they're supposed to be serving, they need to work to build that trust, right? What bothers me is that the media is not doing much to help that. They're making it worse mm-hmm. because of the way that they highlight these these um, isolated incidents and make them look like it's happening everywhere by everyone. That yeah. doesn't help. And that's what I struggle with. I, I yell think, at the TV a lot. <laughs> I would think that, you know, that I, I was just thinking for for me, because I've never really listened to it, but they with they leave with the headline says, and we were reporting on another police, um, uh, you know, somebody being pulled over and shot and killed by police. Another. It's like, yeah, and here it is. Another story. It's happened again. And I bet when you hear that, it's like I, this first time I was realized that that's what they say. <laughs> if if the, the problem with the news so much today is the editorialization that goes behind yeah. it, right? It's not so much the the story. The story may be, the story may be offered somewhat accurately, but it's the headline that they use, or the you know breaking news, boom, or 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 in the newspaper, what's the headline say? Because mm-hmm. a lot of people don't go past the headline, right? right. Um, so when you if you don't drill down into it you believe what you're being told and unfortunately you talk about listening we've talked people are listening there's a lot of noise out there mm-hmm. there's a lot of noise out there but are we trying to listen through the noise right it, well either that yeah. or you accept the noise as truth as truth right and, yeah. and and if you don't look any further you accept it as truth and and when there are whatever their reasons are for that i i remember an interview with a portland police officer who was on the front lines at, at one of the uh protests and and riots during the uh, the george floyd demonstrations in portland he was black and he was trying to have a conversation with one of the kids that was on the other side of the fence, right? On the other side of the of the picket line, if you want to call it that. And this kid got, he said, I just wanted to see what was going on. What, what was his thoughts? What was, you know, want to be able to have a conversation. This kid was immediately pulled aside by one of the organizers standing behind says, we don't talk to cops, right? All right. Well, how does that help? Awesome. You don't want to help. Don't tell me you want to help if that's the attitude that you're taking. You don't yeah. want to help. You're part of the problem. And that's yeah. not and and unfortunately that's happening so much and it's so frustrating. Um but but again, that doesn't mean we have to do about if if you've lost the trust of the people that you serve, you've got to do something to regain it. And mm-hmm. you have to be proactive about that. You do. Um there are ways of doing that. But you have to be you have to be proactive about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you so. have to, well, you have to be not only proactive, but it's uh, you know we talked about the community. It's it, it is it's an open mindedness. It's an it's a willingness 
to find out to understand the situation for what it is because like uh, you know like even like the title of the show there's two sides there's more than two sides to every story but there's at least two sides to every story and if all we're hearing all we're telling all we're sharing is the adversity side you know the cops are bad or cops are racist or cops are killers or cops are you know too authoritarian if that's the story that we're hearing um that's not the whole story there's another half to it there's another side and and what I heard from you, Corky, really clear is, is this is a reminder, is police offices are human. And just like corporations, corporations do the best that they can to hire the best that they can. Not everybody's a great employee. You know, not everybody fits nope. into the situation and, you know, and things happen and you, you know, sometimes you let people go because they just don't meet it. And it's the same thing with police officers. Yeah, they can check your room. They can interview your parents. They can talk to your teacher. They can check up on your best friends. Sometimes we make bad hires. That doesn't mean all policemen are bad. That means that some hires didn't work out. Um, but it goes back to that whole notion is the process is human. We are human. And what we need to recognize is, is that, you know, like we, you know, the, back to the traffic stop, the easiest way to deal with a police officer when you get pulled over is, is respect them for who they are, a human being doing a job, yeah. you know, and I know I'm simplifying that, but that's kind of how no, I but feel it's, about but it. But it's, but it's true. You know, um, if I want to tell a story and be pissed off and you're being a racist, you're being arrogant, you're being rude, you're picking on me. Yeah, if that's the story I want to tell, that's what I convey. All I'm doing is bringing tension to a situation that doesn't need tension. Right. It's already got, it doesn't need more tension. It already has no, tension. There's enough tension just in a traffic stop. Yeah. And, and like I said, I get it. People don't like to be told when they're wrong. I don't <laughs> like it either. I don't either. And the yeah. other side of it with cops, you know, again. With, with great authority, with great power comes great responsibility. And that's important for cops to realize. Yeah. Um, but we need to do more. Final thought. We need to do more, I believe, in helping our police officers, troopers, frontline law enforcement in dealing with the common day, day-to-day stresses of the job that they do. Yeah, yeah that's... Uh... Well, you brought two. You brought two things up, and we didn't spend any time on the second one. But you brought two things up, and I really appreciate it. The first one is the mental health side. Everybody needs it, and when you're dealing with a job that's high stress, high exposure, high trauma, high you know, all the more reason. And then the other thing you talked about, we didn't spend any time with, but I love the fact that you're passionate about community policing because I think that's the other thing that we have definitely lost is we've lost a connection, the opportunity for police officers to connect to the community. They ride around in cars like that's exactly right. They don't walk a beat so much anymore. They ride around in cars and they've yeah. lost. We've lost that face to face. Yeah, We've lost that face to face as a society as well. Very much so. Yeah. We're just like you and I were zooming in today. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So, all right, man, you know what? This was great. I know it goes flies by. There was so much we could have talked to, but I really appreciate you being on here. Great perspectives, and um, thank you for the work that you've done in the community in the past, but also I love your voice on this, and and please keep it up. Thanks for the opportunity to talk, Jack. Thanks. Thanks, David. All right. Remember, open your heart, open your ears, open your mind, because once you start listening, everything changes. Until next week, this is David Cook with Stop Telling, Start Listening. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Stop Telling and Start Listening. We hope you've picked up on some useful ideas to help you enhance your conversational skills. Until we listen again, have a beautiful week.